I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology. Happy Women's History Month, everyone. Today, you will be hearing from a dear friend of mine, the Reverend Courtney Bryant-Prince. I had the pleasure of speaking with her about her call to ministry and theology, and a little bit about her dissertation work on the erotic and the problem of women's bodies, which we will focus more on her, her second episode. But what I'm really excited to talk about and share with you all today is Courtney's focus on womanist theology and ethics. Womanism is a theology done through the lens of black women. It's a type of hermeneutic or a way of interpreting things. I will have more, a more focused episode on this type of hermeneutic in the future, but today is a little taste of this robust way of doing theology that I absolutely adore and respect and think we need more of in the world. So here's Courtney, y'all. Bryant is a womanist Christian social ethicist pursuing her PhD in religion, ethics, and society at Vanderbilt University. Her current projects focus on the erotic as a divine resource for moral agency. From the vantage point of Black female corporeality, she considers the impact of Eros on identity construction, the materiality of liberation, and relational ethics. Bryant is also an ordained reverend in the American and National Baptist Church and currently teaches Christian social ethics at Union Presbyterian Seminary. Welcome, CB. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. So I, we know each other because we went to Vanderbilt together, but you were, you've been pursuing your doctorate for a while. Were you in your first year, my first year, or? I feel like you might have been your second. I started, I think, in 2012. Okay. I think I was 13. Mm-hmm. So we, you were my TA for a couple classes, and then we took several, like a bunch of classes together because I focused, my focus was in ethics as well. So mm-hmm. that was a lot of fun. And we worked in the mm-hmm. library together. Yes. Which was also yes. mag- <laughs> magical, stressful moments. We had wonderful before. conversations. We did. Yeah. We did. And so you've done most of your work at Vanderbilt with Stacey Floyd Thomas and Victor Anderson, right? And Emily Towns. Emily Towns. Okay. Why Mm -hmm. did you pick Vanderbilt to do your doctorate? Mm -hmm. So I went to Duke for my MDiv and Duke is an incredibly, uh, I guess, I don't know. They call it like, they're very into orthodoxy. So you're going to get, like very traditional normative views about what Christianity is, normative, orthodox, quote unquote, orthodox views on doctrine. Um, and they're very, very big on Christian community. And so there was this very Christian, traditionally Christian environment that I came out of, which was wonderful. It was yeah. everything that I wanted. Um, 
But when I thought about the possibility of doing doctoral work, I wanted to put my brain in a new place. I wanted to put myself in a new place um, so that it wasn't more of the same, but I wanted to think through how to um, minister to and to teach people who may not have come from the same sort of Christian background as myself. Right. And so um, I went to Vanderbilt for that reason. I was also really intrigued by their ethics department because there were so many people of color there. Yeah. Um, and I got really, really lucky because um, Emily Towns came to Vanderbilt a year later. And so I got the best of all worlds. For real. That's a, a big reason. All those reasons are another reason why I chose Vanderbilt too, from my extremely Orthodox Catholic uh, undergrad education. That's right. Nor- Notre Dame, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now you're in Virginia. Are mm-hmm. you, you're at UVA finishing up your doctorate with Katie Cannon? No, I am at UP SEM. So Union Presbyterian Seminary. <laughs> that's what That's what I meant. Uh-huh. So that's totally yeah. what I meant. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, Katie Cannon, who is essentially the mother of womanist ethics, yes. teaches here. And so I have a fellowship called Theology and Practice through the Lilly Foundation. Um, and it provides five years of funding for the regular PhD and then an additional year of funding where you go and you serve um, in a teaching capacity at a freestanding seminary. And so I am here teaching and finishing up my dissertation. And while I'm here, Katie Cannon is my mentor in residence. And that has been an amazing experience. That's awesome. That's like if I went to do my doctoral work with Elizabeth Johnson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's that's exactly kinda, right. She's kind of like my Katie Cannon. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I is mean, she the mother of feminist or sexual ethics? Uh, I don't know what I'd call her the mother of maybe okay. of like, of like white of like just thinking about the divine as female in a okay. Catholic more towards the Catholic uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been an amazing time being with um, Katie Cannon. She has been phenomenal in helping me to think through pedagogy, but then also just my identity as a womanist scholar and just a human being. I'm always impressed by how she's this amazing teacher and this amazing writer, but she's also just, I mean, a tremendous human being. As I watch her, just, you know, you know how you watch people when when they don't know that you're watching? Yeah. She, um, she just embodies this beautiful grace and like loving spirit. I'm mm. constantly seeing her help people and like bend over backwards to help Mm. folks at a time when really, you know, like she's the Dundada, you know, she's the queen bee and people can certainly serve her, but she constantly is, is being of service to other folks. And it's just, it's a wonderful example. Yeah. That's great. That's really Mm -hmm. great. Um, I wanted to ask you about your Baptist ordination. Mm Mm-hmm. Why the Baptist church? Did you grow up in the Baptist tradition? Um, so I have been denominationally promiscuous. <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up um, congregational, actually, from birth until about 12 years old. 
uh, we, we worshiped in a congregational church and there was some drama and, and conflict at that church after the pastor left. Mm. And so we left as well. And so um, at that time we were traveling, my family and I were traveling into the Bronx after having moved to the suburbs and so it was like a half hour drive to get to church. And so we figured, well, now that we don't go to that church, let's look for one in the suburbs. And so we um, ended up at a Baptist church after um, a number of visits to other places. And interestingly enough, I brought my parents to that church because they had a really thriving youth ministry. Oh. And one of my friends invited me to the youth ministry and I in turn invited my parents to church. Oh. And uh, we joined. It was crazy. We joined as a family. And so we all got baptized all together. It was very interesting. I mean, it wasn't a meaningful baptism in my, in my mind because uh-huh. we had already grown up in church. We'd already accepted Jesus as our personal Lord and right. Savior. But because they were Baptists, they wanted us to be fully immersed. They got to immerse you. Yeah. They were like, listen, you have to get completely wet <laughs> or it doesn't count. <laughs> so the whole family. In there. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so the whole family family went and we got um, baptized and it was good. Interestingly enough, I got re-baptized at like 26, I think, just because that baptism wasn't very meaningful to me. Okay. But I've, I've done everything. Like literally, I've been christened, I have been wow. confirmed, really I was have. baptized and then baptized again for My goodness, sure. woman. Yeah, a lot. You are... Just want to make sure Jesus you knows. Got, you know, cover those bases. <laughs> Even if it's among different denominations, make right. sure they're covered. Make sure. Make sure. Goodness, yeah. What else could we do to you? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't. There has to be something, though. There has to know, be. Right? <laughs> oh my yeah. lord! Yeah, but I've gotten it all done. Good. What do you like about the Baptist Church theologically that made mm-hmm. you want to? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I really like about the Baptist Church is the notion of believers' baptism. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. That's not to say that people who get baptized when they're infants, you know, are not saved. Because I, I don't necessarily believe that the water, you know, a- accomplishes anything. But I do believe that there is something to be said about knowing for certain what you are committing to, knowing yeah. for certain what you are confessing to in terms of like confessing a particular belief. Um, And for me, when I was 26 and I got baptized, for me, that was me actually saying, you know, I'm putting away the things of this world and I am, you know, identifying myself with Christ and Christ's death. And so um, I appreciate that about the Baptist church. Um, I also, I I kind of appreciate the autonomy of the Baptist church because I think that has enabled me to be able to see people, uh, women, in ministry in ways that I might not have been able to in other denominations. Uh Um, But like, because. Can you explain autonomy a little bit for Mm -hmm. people who might not know what you mean Mm -hmm. by that? Yeah. So Baptist churches, I mean, they they may be affiliated with a particular Baptist convention, like the national Baptist or the American Baptist or the Southern Baptist. Um, But ultimately each congregation is autonomous in the sense that they can, you know, choose to uh, embrace the the creed, not the creeds, but like the various beliefs or ways of being that the conferences have, or they can say no. So for instance, the Southern Baptist Convention uh-huh. does not ordain women. Um, right. 
However, in the National Baptist Convention, certainly they do. But let's say the National Baptist Convention said, oh, well, we've decided we don't want to ordain women anymore. Each congregation would have the, um, the power and the independence to decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, so that creates some problems as well, because when you have all of these autonomous bodies, what ends up happening is that it's difficult for folks to link up and, and operate on one path. Um, uh, it also prevents a lot of women from getting churches because there's no like national feeder system or a system that is in place to make sure that it's fair. And so ultimately, uh, there's a lot of nepotism and a lot of patriarchal practices that go into selecting pastors. How long ago did you get ordained? I got ordained um, immediately after graduating from Duke. So I graduated in 2011 and I was ordained that August. So were you wanting to go into ministry or were you always thinking doctoral program? So when I began my MDiv program, I completely thought that I was going to um, be in full-time ministry. I didn't necessarily know. I didn't think that it was going to be the kind of ministry where I was like the pastor of a church because that for some reason never, uh, it never called. I I never felt that sense of call, but I did feel a sense of call in in the sense of like consulting for churches, Mm -hmm. developing, um, conferences and workshops and learning guides, that sort of thing. Um, And I've always been on staff as an associate minister in all of the places that I have lived um, since becoming, or since acknowledging my call and being called to preach. Yeah. Or licensed to preach, I should say. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what made you want to be a theologian? Right. Well, so I think that I've been a theologian all of my life. I think that because I grew up in a very spiritual and religious household, um, it just cultivated within me a very theocentric view of the world. And so, I mean, I I would go to bed praying and wake up praying. I would Mm -hmm. think, you know, I was definitely indoctrinated with that. What would Jesus do sort of moment? But also I always had you know, deep questions about God and why God did this or, you know, what our relationship to to God should be or what our responsibility to God should be. And so um, I think that this is kind of a natural progression of just who I am. I remember prior to being, prior to going to Duke, I, um, you know, had a very good career and I did a lot of speaking engagements, um, working as a diversity consultant. And I remember just, you know, I always wanted to put things in the context of theology and and really didn't even have that kind of language for it. You know, I just knew that I wanted to talk about God. I wanted to talk about um, people and how people could be empowered by God, um, how our understanding of God and our relationship to God impacts the way we treat one another. Um, So I always had these theological questions and was operating in that sort of theocentric um, philosophy, if you will. And uh, so this, this is kind of a, a natural outgrowth, I think. Mm-hmm. The next question I had was, how does all of that inform your vocation? And it, mm-hmm. it kind of spoke a little bit about that. Yeah. But how so, uh, being a, mm-hmm. a Black woman contributes to your yeah. sense of call? 
So I'm going to deal with the first question and then I will deal with the second. But so yeah. in 2008, when I left my job, the reason I left my job is because I didn't feel like I could fully live into who God was calling me to be and who I felt God was calling me to be was someone who would speak for truth, somebody who would uh, empower people through the word of God, somebody who would make the word of God relevant to the circumstances of today. Um, and I knew that I would do that, that through speaking, through teaching, through preaching, and through counseling. And so I was doing a lot of that and had been doing a lot of that throughout my career. Um, but it just I hadn't been calling it that. Um, and oftentimes, man, I did a, a number of things. But so uh, I worked in um, the nonprofit sector. That's right. um, I directed youth development programs mm -hmm. and then ultimately became a diversity consultant for the United States Tennis Association and then Blue Cross Blue Shield. Okay. Um, and so in that, there was a lot of preparing workshops and speaking before large groups of people, talking to them about um, how to grow, how to develop, but then also how to treat other people, right? And how we are all interconnected. But, it, but especially with the USTA, it was very much geared toward engaging in, um, engaging in diverse communities for financial reasons. So mm -hmm. your business grows as a result of you talking to more black people, hiring more black people, you know, making sure that Asian people um, feel comfortable at tennis games, understanding why they do. And so there's, there was all of that going on all so that one could get to the bottom line of making a dollar. Right. And for me, it was much more important that we talk about um, our connection, uh, our connection spiritually and our interdependence on one another. Um, because that's, you know, what I felt like God was calling us to. And so this kind of got in the way, the, the, the whole notion that this was um, a, an economic scheme, right, to right. better our business always got in the way. And so I just felt like it was necessary for me to take a leap of faith left a very nice, cushy, well-paying job <laughs> um, to sort of charter new territory. And it's interesting because I, I never realized how much trouble women have specifically mm. um, in becoming theologians, you know, for primarily um, becoming pastors and preaching engagements. Because as I said, in the church that I grew up in, I constantly saw women in ministry. I mm. constantly saw women preaching. So like, it wasn't a thing. I didn't, yeah. I, I come from New York. So yeah. um, I, I didn't expect it to be what it was. But once I got to the South, because Duke is in North Carolina yeah. and then uh, Vanderbilt's in Nashville, which is not South, but feel South, yeah. feel Southern. Um, I noticed that women, you know, have all sorts of trouble in procuring teaching and not teaching, I'm sorry, preaching opportunities. And mm -hmm. at Duke, I mean, I would see women who could preach circles around the men. I mean, myself included, yet it was always the men that were called to preach. And oh, mm -hmm. if you had a good hoop, you know, you know what a hoop is, right? Hooping oh, in the black church. Oh, yeah. When, when, uh, yeah. Okay. So when uh, the preachers are like, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, 
<laughs> it's this particular performance and it's usually done by men. Yeah, yeah. Right? And oftentimes when you see women do it, you, it it's a mimicking yeah. of masculinity because that is what is perceived in the black community as mm. proper preaching, right? The preaching, the preacher is always a man. And so for women uh, to take the pulpit is considered a big deal, or at least it is in the South. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I, I noticed, I noticed those kinds of discrepancies. I also noticed the disparities, uh, the ways in which uh, women were treated in the church, you know, the church, particularly the black church is a good three quarters, three quarters women. And okay. then there's this smattering of men. Yeah. Yet, men are always the ones in leadership, whether it be like small group ministry to pastoring, what have you. And in addition to that, uh, black women's bodies, and I'm sure women's bodies in generally in in general in the church, but specifically in the church that I was at, Mm -hmm. uh, were being policed very heavily. And when I say policed, I mean, you couldn't stand up and pray in the service. Like you couldn't lead prayer if you had on pants in my former church. Wow. Um, Yeah. I don't know. And it's weird because it wasn't always like that, but all of a sudden these new rules came to pass. I, you know, joined the church when I was 12. Well at 12, you know, I was starting to, you know, be pubescent. Um, At Uh 14, you know, the curves were coming and all of a sudden it was a different story about how I had to dress, what needed to be covered, what was appropriate, what wasn't. Um, And I was fascinated by this because uh, it seemed like the life and the breath of the church were women, yet women were being subjugated and, and controlled in Giving these ways. Giving rules. Exactly. Uh, the same type of experience happened to me. I went to this very conservative Christian um, evangelical summer youth camp. Mm-hmm. And girls had to wear one-piece swimsuits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing <laughs> up, I was always in a string bikini. Always. You know? Or, oh, wow like a sports bra and some shorts, you know, if I was mm-hmm. just running around outside or whatever. Um, but so we had to wear a one piece and the guys could run around without their shirts off. No problem. Of course. Right. Right. And so I was like, what in the hell? Like, what is this? And constantly mm-hmm. taught that, you know, my body was tempting him to them. Right. But he wasn't tempting me. Right. So, right. you know, you get you get taught religion. The church teaches mm-hmm. these, really socializes us mm-hmm. to behave in certain ways and think in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous to me that I can't, that I have to wear a bra and a shirt all the time. I, I mean, I, just, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> the sexualization of women's bodies is, yes. is just asinine to me. Seems well, like I mean, at the end of the day, fix. well, I mean, I, you know, it's so funny because since I have been in this doctoral program, it's amazing to me just how deep the rabbit hole goal goes every day. I feel like I learned something more, but like, you can't be surprised by any of this. Yeah. So, I mean, so one of the things that I'm dealing with in my dissertation is the ways in which women's bodies in general, whether we're black, we're white, Asian, Hispanic, have never belonged to us. Like our right. bodies, we've always been dispossessed of our bodies. Our bodies mm-hmm. belong to either our fathers, yeah. right? And then to our husbands when we get married. And so with with that, um, women's bodies are perceived as property. P 
period. Um, And so if in fact that is the case, then the policing of said property will always take place because you don't want other people enjoying your stuff, right? Right. And you also don't want, uh, you don't want your stuff or your property calling attention to itself so that others might want to get at it and tarnish it, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the midst of it, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm using the pronoun um, it as opposed to her or him, because it's very much, you know, a, a process of objectification. Yeah. Um, now, for for Black women, we are doubly dispossessed. Not only, right. you know, do our bodies belong to our fathers or our husbands, but they also belong to the white world to right. use, you know, at their at their leisure for their pleasure. Right. Um, and so, one of the questions that I have been grappling with in this dissertation is, how do we, as Black women, figure out ways of repossessing and re, re, like, repossessing ourselves um, and reauthorizing ourselves as subjects. And through those lessons, I think other women can also uh, benefit. Mm-hmm. So as speaking to the, I think that's speaking to the second part of that question of mm. what does it mean to be a black woman, mm. woman doing the work you're doing? <sighs> Yeah, I was um, um, interviewing Lise Valle yesterday, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she said her gender formed her questions. Or they absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So when I talked about you know my experience in the Black Church and um, how my body was policed and how I was how my role was subordinated, um, this. This is this grows immediately out of my black woman in the world. Um, yeah, so definitely it forms my questions, but I think it also shapes the way that we pursue said questions. So in the yeah. beginning, you asked me like, "Well, why yes. did you go to Vanderbilt?" And part of the reason was because I was looking for scholars of color. Right. Um, and the reason that that is so important is because I was trying to get out of and away from this worldview where whiteness and maleness was central and not only central, but assumed in all things. Because one of the things that I felt, I I had this cognitive dissonance when I was at Duke. Um, I remember being in a a class called Journeys in Reconciliation. And it was all about, you know, putting ourselves in the space of the poor, this sort of like incarnational ministry. And one of the things that I said is, you know, Black people aspire to get out of the ghetto all their lives. What do you mean you want me to go back? No. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because I brought my, my experience and my perspective to the conversation. I was branded a troublemaker. And, oh, you know, the, the, the spirit of Christ may not be living in you and you're difficult or angry, difficult or angry. I'm just trying to bring questions that are relevant to my experience to the table. And so um, being at Vanderbilt allowed for that shorthand because I, I don't have to do that sort of explaining anymore. Um, and, and my hope, my goal as um, a womanist scholar is to also create that shorthand so that those who come behind me don't have to as well. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about womanist theology? Mm-hmm. Um, so womanist theology is born out of a uh, definition of womanism that was created by Alice Walker. 
Um, and essentially, it is, it is the intersectional analysis of all that goes on in the world, taking into consideration uh, race, class, and gender. And so in the ways that what it, it, it racializes those things left neglected by feminists, white feminists specifically, yeah. um, about, about the experience of women. Uh, but it also genderizes the experience of blackness for black theology. And so a number of scholars of color, uh, whether they, they be um, Katie Cannon, Dolores Williams, Jacqueline Grant, um, they, they were going through their PhD programs. And like me, they recognized that so much of what was going on, so much of what was being learned, so much of what was being written down assumed whiteness and maleness. Mm -hmm. And so, and they were also coming up during the time when feminism was really starting to gain traction, but they often said, well, you know, they felt as though they had to choose between being black or being a woman. Mm. Uh, and so, and, and it is difficult uh, because <laughs> you, you really do, you're doubly oppressed. Right. And so it is that intersectional analysis, um, but it grows out of uh, the, the, a theological discipline, but has spread out to other disciplines in the humanities. Um, but but the, the crux of womanist thought is theological thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a new way of thinking about ethics. Mm, absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, the body in, in all your work is using the body as a source of uh, theological and ethical reflection, which I think Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. is so important to do that I don't think the right. mothers and right. fathers of the church really did, at least not, right. not um, explicitly. Well, they they definitely the fathers and, and maybe even the mothers of the church upped all philosophy and theology from the perspective of Descartes and this notion that I think, therefore I am. And what is wonderful about womanist thought is that it really presses on this notion that the body and the mind are separate and says no, you know, womanist ontology is an ontology of wholeness that recognizes that the, our lived experience is both thought and felt. And so it's not just about, well, I think, therefore I am, but I exist, I feel, I experience, yeah. therefore I am. And so in so doing, it, it unlocks all these new ways of knowing, um, all these new ways of thinking, and privileges the body as a site of knowing, which is unheard of in theological thought because yeah. the body has always been demonized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so liberating and redemptive to me. It is. It is. It's incredible. Working on my dissertation on the erotic has really um, challenged a lot of what I understood about my body, mm -hmm. um, about, about pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the hugest pieces is the notion that pleasure is constitutive of human, of uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. Right. It's constitutive of humanness in the sense that, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about black women being doubly dispossessed. Right. And being treated as objects. Well, objects can't 
think, but they also can't feel, right? right? They have no desire. And so uh, I'm all, I'm often fascinated by the words of Malcolm X, right? So he talks about the um, civil rights movement and how the only black, the only kind of black person that white America is willing to embrace is, is a black person without a will and without desire. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially an object, but through, but through pleasure, we remember not we we become reconnected not only with our desire but with our will right mm-hmm. so objects do not feel objects do not have desires objects do not take pleasure in themselves or in anything else and so in affirming pleasure we are in a sense affirming our humanity as well yes and using it as a way to assert our humanity yes mm-hmm. yeah very redemptive i'm sure part of this will answer this next question but where do you encounter the divine most these days? These days, it's actually pretty tough. I think that when you get in a rebral project, like a dissertation, it begins to consume you. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's been, it's actually been a lot harder to encounter the divine um, while I've been in my PhD program. And you hear that a lot from a lot of people. Um, but one of the ways that I have experienced the divine is through um, justice action, pursuing justice. Mm. I was actually still living in Nashville, and I think you were around for that. Um, we we did um, uh, what was it called? It was um, essentially a, a time of tribute for the slain victims yeah, of extrajudicial a violence of, a bunch of artwork yeah that. that was amazing exactly work. yeah and so it was called the living memorial yeah. and essentially what we did is what we recreated um sites of violence and sites of death uh-huh. that were happening in the various communities around the world um in these black impoverished communities and we recreated them on on the campus of of Vanderbilt so you have this very pristine right. bubble right Vanderbilt is essentially a bubble where the privileged come to be educated and so in in so doing they are very much shielded from what's going on in the real world so one of the questions i ask is what does what is it what happens when the privileged uh, when the environments of the privileged are disrupted yeah. by this kinds of violence and how can we reflect together as a community of thinkers, as a community of scholars um, to think through uh, what are some ways to stop this from happening and what our role and responsibility is in this particular time. And so this was done in the divinity school, but was very much for the greater Vander Yeah. Vanderbilt community and what's interesting is I mean I did a lot of work I mean and it was like that sort of kinesthetic labor where you're you know you're creating art with people you're managing people you're thinking through how you want it to be put together and so it was like really all-encompassing I actually had to put my dissertation down and and completely focus on which was good for me yeah Um, but what was interesting is the day that the living memorial went live. I remember I was working in the library. I wasn't working in the divinity library, but the other one. Um, and I very much had a, a, a visitation. I had a divine visitation and I very much believe that it was a product 
of all of the work that I had been that I had put in. Um, and and so when I say that, I I almost look at the work that I had put in as a kind of prayer. Yes. Of right. Course. So I did this work and this creating um, as a way of trying to access what my responsibility in, in this matter was and what I as a minister of the gospel could do. And in so doing, I, I believe that the divine met me there. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a really beautiful thing. I also experience and encounter the divine um, in, in any kind of creative work. So I, I, I've moved from praying verbally to coloring my prayers um, and that's been a really beautiful way of visualizing the divine and visualizing how I want the divine to manifest in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I, and I encounter the divine in um, relationality. So anytime yeah. I'm, you know, deeply engaging with other individuals, yeah. I always feel that the divine is among us. Now you didn't, yeah. You didn't mm-hmm. put this as one of your questions that we want to answer in, I just wanted to know if you wanted to comment or had any things to say about Sophia and what she means mm. to you. Well, no. So, you know, again, um, I came from a very traditional background and I remember starting at Duke and I remember all of like the talk about like using feminine pronouns for God. And I was vehemently against it. Yeah. yeah vehemently against it in this, because that is what I'd always been taught. Yeah. So very much, socialized to believe that there is no femininity in the Godhead. Um, And luckily I went, when I went to divinity school, so did my best friend. So we used to have all these sorts of like womanist and feminist conversations. And and we didn't call them that, but that's what they were because we were women trying to figure out our place in the, in, in theology. And, you know, as the years went on, I was just like, you know, it's a form of self-hate for us to honestly believe that there is no femininity in the Godhead. Um, how can we be created in God's image if we are both male and female? Um, and so, so Sophia is near and dear to my heart. I love that wisdom is called Sophia. Interestingly enough, so is Numa. Um, the, yeah, so the, the word for spirit and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is considered feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's necessary. Uh, I think it's something that we need to teach our children while we're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's one of the primary ways that we can begin to dismantle, if not patriarchy in the material sense, uh, patriarchy in the psychic sense. Yeah. Because when we believe that there is no femininity in God, then that is to say that we as women do not participate in the divine image. And that's, and that's, that's garbage. I mean, we know that that's garbage of God's works is being done by women. So yeah. So um, absolutely. It's near and dear to my heart. And I I hope to continue in the tradition of Sophia and helping people to understand why Sophia is a feminine principle. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed Courtney. She is insanely talented and intelligent. Next week's episode features her work in erotic theology or thinking about God as Eros through a womanist lens. Y'all won't want to miss that one. It's a rich, deep conversation. 
Once again, please take the time, if you haven't already, to rate and review Theosophia on iTunes and visit us at Theosophia Podcast and TheologyCorner.net. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.